0: Trump unveils his Afghanistan strategy.
1: The American people are weary of war without victory. Nowhere is this more evident than with the war in Afghanistan.
0: But what does it mean for Afghanistan, America and the UK, plus Europe's migrant crisis and the US Navy in disarray? So, after weeks of speculation on Monday night, we finally found out Donald Trump's new strategy for Afghanistan. Well, sort of. We're going to look at several of the points from his speech, but first, here's a reminder of some of the key ones.
1: My original instinct was to pull out. And historically, I like following my instincts. Military power alone will not bring peace to Afghanistan or stop the terrorist threat, but strategically applied force aims to create the conditions for a political process to achieve a lasting peace. A hasty withdrawal would create a vacuum that terrorists, including ISIS and al Qaeda, would instantly fill, just as happened before September 11th we will not talk about numbers of troops or our plans for further military activities conditions on the ground not arbitrary timetables will guide our strategy from now on we are not nation building again we are killing terrorists well, that was Donald Trump
0: speaking on Monday night at the Fort Myer military base near Washington, D.C. So what does all this actually mean? Well, with us, as always, to discuss this and more is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, and Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford. And we're also joined to look at the U.S. president's speech in more detail by Emily Winterbotham, a Senior Search Fellow at RUSI. First, Emily, did
2: Donald Trump's speech surprise you? Um, I mean I think he said it himself that you know he's gone back on perhaps previous statements that he's made on Afghanistan Um, but I think you know you yourself said it when you introduced the peace um, strategy sort of Uh, so I don't really think he said uh, very much that he won't be able to go back on or or change direction on moving you know moving forwards if he so wishes. Mm,
0: You've been to Afghanistan recently what is your impression from being on the ground?
2: Yeah I mean my last trip Back there was in May, actually, just before um, the major attack in the diplomatic uh, center of uh, the city, which so was on the 31st of May. Um, and I've seen, you know, I've be, I've I lived in Afghanistan from, what, 2009 to 2015, and I've been back at least six times uh, in the last two years. Um, and I've really seen a deterioration particularly in Kabul security in Kabul Um, and then if you look more broadly across the country increasing parts um, of the country not necessarily under Taliban control um, but under um, insurgent control and and creating ungoverned spaces and and, you know areas where there are kind of battles between government forces and a range of different militant or insurgent groups.
0: And against that backdrop Donald Trump was talking about tackling terrorism
2: but ending nation building. Do you buy that? Yeah, I mean, he obviously had a kind of very counter terrorism um, focus within his speech, which seemed to move away from um, the kind of discussions we've been having over the last few years under the NATO mission, um, which was the kind of train, advise, and support. The terrorist angle is an interesting one because, you know, if we look at the terrorist threat, well, As of around 2002, 2003, the threat that Al-Qaeda posed um, to the West was by and large eliminated. Obviously, we've seen some uh, resurgence of Al-Qaeda, particularly in the east of the country, but the leader, uh, Zawari, was actually killed uh, last year. And then obviously the more um, kind of recent threat in the presence of ISIS or Daesh, which, you know, it, it... Obviously, there's been some targeting of their strongholds, uh, particularly in Nangarhar, but still does remain a limited concern. Um, but I think the very, very kind of ongoing threat to Afghanistan's internal security still remains to be the Taliban, uh, and I guess opinions are divided as to how. The Taliban is viewed, and whether it's actually a threat to international security rather than just to Afghanistan's domestic mm. security. Well,
0: listening to you, um, Emily's Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, Christopher, what do you think of Donald Trump's speech this week?
3: The the, the, the centre of it wasn't it? <clears throat> We're there to kill terrorists. Very simple, and that the country is wear- weary of war without victory. OK, to kill terrorists. What do you kill them with? Uh, what is the composition, for example, of any forces that you've got there? Do you have to change? What is your policy? You devise a policy, then you say to your generals or you say to the, the uh, Secretary of Defence, um, that's our policy... Um, now you tell me what you've got and how you guarantee that policy. But then supposing you have certain successes, whether it's because you've tagged into the Afghan forces or because you've put your own units in to do a major job which you don't believe the Afghan forces can do it successfully, how do you What do you do after you've done that? Let's say you've cleared an area. What do you do to hold and for how long do you want to hold it? Then how do you handle Pakistan? Because Pakistan has got a very important role in this. Um, And then you have to think of something else because if the president should not be thinking of what he is going to do, this, if we're right about a new style of policy, this goes on to the next president. This this is vulnerable, uh, what he was talking about to the political persuasion of the United States and the next White House, maybe. Mm.
0: Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford is also with us today. Uh, Paul, this idea about we're here to tackle terrorism, I heard at least one uh, defence expert uh, in the region talking this week saying, well, actually, if if you're really thinking about the terrorist threat, you should be thinking about North Africa, not Afghanistan.
4: I think absolutely so. I mean, ISIS, Daesh is a problem in Afghanistan, but it's pretty small compared with the rise of politically violent groups elsewhere. As far as Afghanistan is concerned, I mean, Trump probably will allow the increase in troop levels to about... Maybe fourteen to sixteen thousand. It's actually more than the nine thousand they say at present. Quite a lot more, in fact. But look at the history. I mean, Obama came in 2010. After a couple of years' consideration, he added thirty thousand troops to the hundred thousand to the seventy thousand already in uh, Afghanistan of Americans, and that took the total of all foreign troops to 140,000. We're talking about a tenth of that number. Um, and if Obama was only putting those in to force the Taliban to the negotiating table, in the last few years the Taliban and other armed opposition groups have substantially increased their hold in Afghanistan. Uh, The poppy growing season is about to start, uh, planting poppies in about six to eight weeks time in Helmand, Uh, that's a huge source of revenue. I simply do not think that this is going to work and I think there has to be a real rethink about what we're doing but I don't see it coming now.
0: So Emily Winterbotham, if you were advising, just suppose, the American President on his strategy in
2: Afghanistan, what, what do you think he should be aiming to achieve exactly? Um, I mean, I I do think there needs to be an emphasis on what is happening internally in Afghanistan, which obviously contradicts, I guess, um, his approach to not want to be engaging in nation building. I think he's rightly very cautious of that. But one of the reasons why we still have an insurgency... Um, is that Afghanistan is, as much as it's a proxy war, it's also an insurgency, a civil war, um, a drugs war. And these are issues that go back to um, government credibility, government legitimacy, and the need to tackle corruption to actually gain uh, widespread uh, government, you know, government legitimacy in Afghanistan. At the same time, I think he probably ignored um, a few other players. He talked about India. He talked about Pakistan. But, you know, what's the role for China? Where's Saudi Arabia in this? Where's Russia? Um, I think we were hoping for a little bit more of a broader South Asia strategy generally, um, rather than uh, the kind of surface level understanding of how he would engage with India and Pakistan specifically that you know we heard on Monday.
0: All right. Emily Winterbotham, thank you for your time. That's Emily Winterbotham, Senior Research Fellow at RUSI. Thank you for your time today. Well, Donald Trump's new strategy for the war in Afghanistan has been praised by Afghan government officials and by NATO members. But some of the focus has angered Pakistan. The US president pointed the finger at Islamabad for harbouring terrorists to look at this aspect and the wider strategy for the region. We're joined by Michael Kugelman, the Asia Programme Deputy Director and senior associate for South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Michael, good to speak to you today. Was Donald Trump's warning to Pakistan fair?
5: Well, I think it was, um, and it certainly was not new incidentally. Um, Previous U.S. presidents and U.S. leaders have essentially um, told Pakistan that they're protecting terrorists and that they need to change their ways. But it is very true that for a number of years, um, the Pakistani, uh, largely the security establishment, has provided... Um, sanctuary to the Afghan Taliban leadership, as well as leaders of the Haqqani Network, which is a militant group that really is a part of the Taliban and carries out some of the most vicious mass casualty attacks in Afghanistan. So it it was a fair threat to make, but at the same time, I would suggest that it was an empty threat because Trump really did not provide any specifics as to how he intends to get Pakistan. To change its thinking and to change its policies Uh, and i think until we know exactly what this administration plans to do you know all we could do is chalk this up uh, as another attempt by the us government to try to get pakistan to do things differently you say that you say that
0: but having said that aid was cut funding was cut from the us last year was it wasn't it in quite a sizable amount that potentially could happen again
5: Yeah, right. And if you want to talk about things that the Trump administration could do, it clearly wants to take a harder line than did the Obama administration. So absolutely, I imagine that aid will probably be strictly conditioned on Pakistan taking actions um, against Afghan Taliban leadership. But the question here is, will that happen? And I think the important thing to keep in mind here are national interests. Um, Pakistan has a very uh, strong national interest, unfortunately, in the view of the U.S., to maintain ties to the Afghan Taliban because it views the Afghan Taliban and its ilk, like the Haqqani Network, as assets that can be used to keep Pakistan's Indian enemy at bay in Afghanistan. Mm. And, you know, the question is what, how much it'll take on the part of the U.S. to get Pakistan to alter those national interests, which I have described as quite immutable and quite rigid.
0: You say these uh, networks can be used to keep Pakistan's enemy India at bay in Pakistan, but Donald Trump is actually encouraging India to take more of a role there.
5: Right, which I think was also a wise decision, quite frankly, because uh, India already has quite an extensive role in Afghanistan, mainly through, mainly as a donor. It's provided a significant amount of development assistance. It funded a major dam that was just opened in Afghanistan. It funded the uh, construction of Afghanistan's new parliament building. So there's already a lot going on there in terms of India, but it's true that by... Trump's calling on India very explicitly to deepen its presence and its footprint in Afghanistan will certainly backfire uh, in terms of trying to get Pakistan to do what the U.S. wants it to do, because, you know, essentially Trump is tapping into Pakistan's greatest fear uh, about Afghanistan, and that's that that India will use it um, as a base from which to plot uh, or support or orchestrate acts of meddling or sabotage in Pakistan which according to Pakistan already includes efforts by India to support separatist rebels uh, in Western Pakistan and Baluchistan. so clearly it was it was rather risky uh, for Trump I mean it was a good thing because it, it indicates the level of support that the US government wants to extend to India but at the same time, it could make it even harder um, to get the type of response from Pakistan that the US would like to get from it.
0: Well, Professor Paul Rogers from the University of Bradford is listening to this and joining us today. Um, Paul Rogers, do you think what Donald Trump is encouraging India to do is actually going to, and what he's said about Pakistan, is going to improve the security of the, really, uh, the region or actually destabilise it further? I
4: think it's a very difficult position because I mean, Michael is absolutely right, as far as Pakistan is concerned, the threat to it is and always has been India I mean many people in the senior Pakistani military actually believe that the Indian aim is to control a whole of South Asia in a single nation it go, it, it's always paranoid but it's deeply embedded in the in uh, in the Pakistani military thinking and the problem is that if in a sense you allow the Indians to have a bigger role what Pakistan will do almost immediately is get much closer to China and in that sense, it's very difficult diplomatically to actually achieve this, and I'm not sure the Trump administration has the capability to do so, not least because of the loss of all those specialists in the State Department since he was appointed.
0: Alright, Paul Rogers, stay with us. Uh, Michael Kugelman from the Woodrow Wilson Centre, thank you for joining us today. Well, although Donald Trump didn't give specific, it's thought, specifics, it's thought around 4,000 extra-American troops will be sent to Afghanistan, but what difference will it actually make? Is sending more troops the most important aspect. Well, we're joined by Emily Knowles, Director of the Remote Control Project at the Oxford Research Group. Emily, you've also been to Afghanistan this year and looked at the decline in political will to put boots on the ground in places like Afghanistan. Did Donald Trump's speech surprise you in that sense?
6: Hi, thanks for inviting me on. I mean, surprise, not not really in many senses. It it sounds like a lot of the old strategy, um, albeit with the timelines taken off. But just because you've taken the timelines off the strategy doesn't make this a long-term approach. So it's, it was really interesting to, to see that actually having gone out and spoken to a lot of troops from, from NATO this February and March, that low troop numbers, although they were causing difficulties on the ground, were not the number one concern or named as kind of the most damaging factor for mission success.
0: Mm, so what did they tell you was the most damaging factor for mission success?
6: Well, as you said, it's this lack of political will. And this especially shows when it comes to sort of bringing maximum pressure to bear on all parties to the conflict to bring them to the negotiation table. I think there's been a lot of attention on the military drawdown and kind of the reduction in troop numbers. But what they were saying was really this, the civilian drawdown has, has been really very damaging as well. They've lost a lot of civilian expertise, diplomatic pressure that they would otherwise have had and these things are kind of very difficult for the military to to step in and fill the gap.
0: In that light then, are you saying
6: that nation building is necessary? Well, I posed the question to them about whether they'd stopped nation building and it was actually very interesting to hear that they didn't think that they had. What you have instead is that they're nation building through the Afghan local forces instead with the international troops trying to provide kind of support and assistance where they can and that this, this is going to take a very long time and doesn't really have this sort of exit strategy. But the, the question of sort of whether more troops will, will fix that, I mean, in March, when even under the old troop cap numbers, you had sort of 15,000 troops that had been pledged by NATO states, they'd only filled 12,000 of those places.
0: Mm-hmm. Christine there was Lee.
6: already sort of a, a, a decline in the numbers of um, people that states are willing to send to Afghanistan. And this is really co- kind of characteristic of the lack of political attention, especially in NATO capitals, which has kind of shifted towards other other fora, so sort of the fight against ISIS, Iraq and Syria, very much dominating the imagination. Yes. E- Emily,
0: Christopher Lee, our defence analyst, has been listening to what you've been saying.
3: This, mm. <clears throat> let's get back a bit and sure. look at the realism of this. Um, a large military force spent a decade and couldn't fix Afghanistan to its own liking. What is planned by uh, Mr. Trump um, is not going to fix Afghanistan to its own liking. There is a difference between Mr. Trump now and Mr. Trump six months ago, and that is partly that the West Wing, if you like, of the White House has been cleared out. Um, He's got there perhaps the the most uh, military-sensitive bunch of advisers, three generals, Uh, that can say, listen, Mr. President, you have to say things about this, but this is the realism. Mm. This is how you might do it. The truth is, though, that nobody has heard anything in the past uh, uh, 72 hours that would make you think that it's going to be any better than it was in the last decade.
0: Emily Knowles, um, as Christopher said, he says Donald Trump is not going to fix Afghanistan. What do you think the objective exactly should be?
6: I really think this focus on bringing all parties to the conflict to the negotiation table has to be key. I mean, it seems like there's an underlying logic to a lot of these different strategies that have been put forward in Afghanistan, which is sort of, if you keep going, if you try and keep winning on a military field, then eventually you're going to force the Taliban to surrender. But that hasn't proven to be correct. And especially while the Taliban continue to be supported by external partners, they continue to be able to win legitimacy among Um, parts of the the Afghan population, you've got this sort of stalemate. And I I, I 100% agree that a couple of thousand more troops isn't going to achieve what 100,000 or 150,000, I think at its peak, couldn't achieve either. So really focusing now on on bringing people to to some sort of peace. I mean, as one of my, my interviews said, I mean, the whole purpose of this war is to fulfill policy and policy has to aim for some sort of peace. Otherwise, if you just uncouple warfare from policy, it can be meaningless. You can carry on fighting in a place like Afghanistan forever, um, but you won't achieve anything until you really focus on bringing parties to the table um, and, and having a negotiated peace settlement for the country.
0: All right. Emily Knowles, on that note, we'll leave it there for now. That's Emily Knowles, Director of the Remote Control Project at the Oxford Research Group. Thank you. Still to come is the US Navy rudderless.
4: I've heard of these uh, reports of uh,
3: potential cyber attacks or cyber uh, interference. We've seen no indications uh, of that uh, as of yet.
0: The Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson has been in Libya this week visiting UK naval officers training the Libyan Coast Guard in search and rescue. Announcing a £9 million aid package for Libya to help deal with the problems of migrants. He described the country as the front line for many challenges, including the threat from terrorism. Well, most affected by the Libyan migrant crisis is Italy. Uh, Christopher, what is the threat to Italy from the wave of migrants?
3: In some senses, it's the whole credibility of the Italian government um, and the Italian government amongst its electorate as well. Um, you've got to remember that only Italy, and to some extent Libya in a strange sort of way, is actually has a, has a direct function in the whole refugee thing. Um, the Italians are saying that other countries in Europe have got to play their part. They've actually got to take part in trying to sort out this problem at the moment. But when you consider that where the... Um, Ignore the barbarism, if you can, for a moment. The fact that there are half a million uh, people at any one time on the move, um, that places like Germany have got 500,000 people coming in, almost a trickle uh, all the time, that when you say, right, you people cannot have uh, citizenship, you must go, only 27% are ever chucked out. And therefore, the economic migrants say, look, we'll join the refugees and we can get in there at the same time. Italy is facing a thing in spades. I was in, in Sicily looking at this, and Sicily has completely changed its whole, its whole tapestry of what it looks like. I mean, forget the islands like Lampedusa and places like that, which are sort of almost in a reception places. Um, and so, therefore, Italy is actually on the verge of a political crisis. Now... You spread that through the whole of Europe eventually as Italy is saying could easily happen and you've got one of the main effects of the whole refugee thing wherever it is and that is political instability. You have instability in Europe at a time when it needs all the stability it can have. Mm. It it has threats that it imagines or are real, let's say, from from the East. And therefore the consequences and what Italy is saying Uh, should be listened to far more carefully and far more done to see if there is a European response to this. And the answer at the moment, there isn't.
0: Paul Rogers, when you hear the Foreign Secretary saying things like there is no doubt at all that Libya is our front line, not only in the fight against illegal immigration, but also against terrorism, do you buy that on the terrorism line?
4: Well, in one sense he may be right, but the wider issue, and I mean this is very much what, what Christopher was saying, is this is a massive issue which far transcends the current problem of terrorism from the likes of ISIS. What we're seeing now is the beginnings of a process of of sort of European and African change, and that is you're getting a greater and greater pressure for movements from people who in other respects are becoming desperate. Uh, we've not even begun to see the impact of the real game changer, which of course is climate. Change and I think the problems that Italy is facing now are the problems that, unless there's some fundamental rethinking, uh, Europe as a whole is going to face over the next 30 years. Mm. Uh, In a sense, this is the early warning it's the canary in in the coal mine Uh, that's the real problem. Christopher
0: was saying that there is, as yet, no European cooperation what do you think could happen exactly? What's practical to do? And with the backdrop of Brexit, of course.
4: Well, what's practical to do is to try and uh, do what you can to stem the flows at present, but you've got to do that at the source. There are huge economic problems in many of the countries, widening divisions, more people on the margins who know they're marginalised. You've actually got to help countries address that at source. And beyond that, of course, you've actually got to take on climate change as probably the most security, most important global security issue facing us over the next four or five decades.
3: You've also got to look at the sources themselves. I mean, yes. when you think, um, <clears throat> where do most of the, um, the um, refugees come from? 82,000, top of the list, Syria. Uh, next one, 42,000 coming in at the moment from Afghanistan. Then Nigeria, then Iraq. So
0: you're talking international <clears throat> development here, are you?
3: Oh, it's, it's greater than that. Yep. You know. it's You know, this is not... Italy's task it's not just an alliance task um it's it's a pan-european and then you get into the regions and you start getting into the regions you then start bumping in to the causes of it all and what have we got to we've got to afghanistan which we've just been talking about and there's no solution to that either
0: now it's been a dramatic week for the u.s navy
6: The collision occurred in the early hours of Monday morning between the U.S. warship, the John S. McCain, and a commercial tanker.
3: I was devastated and heartbroken to hear about the collision.
6: It happened in a busy
0: shipping route on Sunday morning. The USS McCain was heading for a routine port visit in Singapore.
1: The intensifying search is focused on this damaged section of the USS McCain. This morning, the commander of the 7th Fleet has been removed from his post because this was the fourth accident under his command this year.
0: Well, that is commander. That, that commander is Vice Admiral Joseph Orcoyne, relieved of his duties because of a loss of confidence in his ability to command, according to a spokesperson. Well, the admiral had been due to retire next month. Christopher, I think the first question is, how can this many incidents happen in sh- such a short space of time?
3: Okay, let, let's take. He's got a reputation the Admiral. Uh, he's got a bigger one now, hasn't he? But he's got a reputation and of being, you know, being a chancer. Um, but I mean, two points. One, who appointed him in the first place? So that's, you, uh, that's the second thing. But the most important thing, uh, I've been in this situation. You, I mean,
0: you say he got a reputation, but nothing has been proven yet, has it? Let's face it.
3: Well, he has got a reputation. Yeah, he has got quite a reputation of being a bit of a chancer. But the most important thing is this. You are in a busy shipping lane. Chance of
0: what?
3: Uh, wait a minute. You've, you're right in the middle. come back in, to in, that. i yeah, <laughs> bet you will. In the <laughs> middle of a busy shipping lane, what do you do? You've got all your electronic navigation, which you're navigating by, but you've also got bridge watch, etc. Just supposing something goes down. Uh, on on your electronics, for example. Uh, Or you've still got the people with eyes watching on the bridge. By the way, the, 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 the weather conditions are actually fine. You do not get close as this big ship, as this small ship, this American warship did you? you don't get as close as that, you don't get anywhere near as close as that, you sort of you, you stand off about a mile and a half So how
0: is he a chancellor exactly? Uh,
3: how is he a chancellor? Yes. He's got a reputation of let's get on with it Of got uh, of 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 something so which you might have get in a John Wayne film.
0: From what you're saying Christopher um, this, these kind of speculation that's going around this week that um, cyber some kind of tampering with the electronics, with the technology being perhaps part of the cause okay, of this suppose, incident. You're supposing you're not sp-
3: possible? Yeah Suppose? Oh yeah. It's, what is, been what been is possible? Ridden. What is possible? You can you can go and squirt somebody's uh, electronic stuff. It's the same way you have electronic countermeasures. You can do it as soon as it happens. You see, because it's all screen drive, uh, screen vision. So as soon as that happens, you go into manual. Door to manual. You've got the guys on the bridge who can say, "Where are we?" If somebody looks around and says, "That big container ship." which can't stop in 12 miles, mm. takes it 12 miles to stop, cannot turn without a turning circle of nine miles. Uh. You keep out of the way. Now, here what, what we have, and eventually we will get, and we'll get to this one, and one that happened last month as well, a, a, similar, a similar, in, similar class of ship in the same fleet. We will get to the guy on the bridge, the guy in command of those ships. He is going to be examined very carefully on basic pilotation navigation
0: Paul Rogers, what's your take on all of this? It's not a great time for the US Navy, is it?
4: It's not, and particularly it's the worst part of the world for it not to be a great time with all the issues with China and North Korea. Um, unless there is really strong evidence. I just don't buy into the whole cyber thing. It could happen. Chris is absolutely right. It could happen. Mm. Uh, and if it does happen, then you're back to basic capabilities, which should still be there and should be honed in any large modern warship. Mm. But I think it, it is more an indication of problems of command, maybe problems of, of overpressure, overwork. We don't know. But certainly, I wouldn't buy into the cyber thing unless there's really good evidence. For
0: Christopher, do you get a near miss in this kind of situation?
3: Um, Well, let's put it this way. Going through the Straits of Dover at the moment, there's something like 200 vessels. They they have pilots on board, people who know the area, and they're good at it. Uh, What we're seeing here is watchkeeping was very, very bad in certainly one American warship.
0: And that is all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS Sitrep. Remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. We're back at the same time next week, but from me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye-bye for now.
3: On digital radio, FM,
4: and satellite TV in the UK.
0: Online and on air around the world.
6: This is Forces Radio. Forces Radio.